everybody, Cora here. Welcome back to Rev on Air, the Rev on Vert podcast, a place for sustainable storytelling with founders, activists, creatives, and phenomenal individuals who are paving the way for a more conscious green future for us all. Today, I'm extremely happy to be bringing you a conversation about our food systems. The more I think about the environmental toll of mass agriculture that dominates how we mostly eat now, the more passionate I am about supporting small-scale organic gardeners. And we have a man on today who has devoted his life to growing sustainably and helping others to do so with him. Charles Downing has been gardening for nearly 40 years and is a beloved expert in the field in Great Britain. His influence now stretches across the globe, including a strong presence on social media, several books and appearances on the BBC, amongst others news outlets. Charles grew up on a dairy farm, but during his college years, he read a book by a philosopher, Peter Singer, which inspired him to become a vegetarian and led him to think differently about all the food we consume. So when he began to develop his one and a half acre landscape shortly after graduating from Cambridge University, his principles of appreciating all forms of life extended into the garden there too. A self-taught gardener, Charles didn't graduate in horticulture. He credits his lack of formal gardening education for allowing him to view things differently than the traditional norms. One big example of that is his interest in gardening organically. He's now renowned for his no-dig sustainable gardening methods. It's a method he teaches and continues to put to the test season after season with incredible results. He inspired both young and old to take up farming. And indeed, I heard about him first through my husband and the husband of our marketing director, both of whom had been following his work to learn more about how to grow themselves and do everything from composting to planting as modern day individuals, just wanting more self-sufficiency and a connection to nature. This is a really amazing conversation with someone who has years of experience and knowledge of the way things currently work and true thoughtfulness about the way they should work when it comes to food systems. Charles is passionate, considered, and inspiring, and I hope this podcast inspires everyone who hears it to try and support their organic farmers or even try their hands at it themselves. Also, we are very pleased that in the show notes, you can get 50% off his online courses with a unique code from us, and we would love to encourage anyone listening to get involved. Now, over to Charles. Hi, Charles. Thank you so much um, for taking the time to come on and speak to me. And I'm really excited to speak to you, um, you know, about your your many years of experience in the world of gardening and, and its potentials to really heal us and, and possibly even heal the planet. Um, and, you know, it seems as though you've been gardening really since the early 1980s. And I always like to kind of start at the beginning and, and just to hear if there was anything in your in your childhood or your younger years before you started that led you into this field specifically or was this something that sort of evolved quite um organically forgive the pun <laughs> for you uh, i think it was partly inside me actually um this desire for a better world but i grew up on a farm so i had good access to what was going on at that time in, in how food was produced in the 1970s particularly when i was a teenager and then when I went to university in the 1977, I got really came across a book about um, animal rights. And that got me thinking about the whole thing, the whole way of food production, really, because one thing led to another, then how animals are treated. And that. I, I just switched to become a vegetarian in 1979. And that was really odd thing in those days. <laughs> so then um, 
then I got into how, how food was being produced. I hadn't really thought about that before that. And then I started reading about it and I realized that a lot of synthetic chemicals, poisons basically are being used to grow food. Yeah. And obviously this was, you know, this was, I'd love to, I, I, I know that this was over 30 years ago at this point, but I think what's kind of insane is that there's still a need to sometimes explain to people um, what sort of chemicals are in the food systems that we have. And, you know, I don't know if it's even gotten, if it's, it's, there's probably arguments that we could say it's gotten better and it's gotten worse, but in terms of the sort of, you know, pesticides and chemicals that you were aware of and the ones that sort of really gave you pause, can you speak a little bit about what those were and sort of what you found out that made you realize that these were not things that you would want within the food yeah. that we were eating? Yeah. Okay, well, I'll give you two examples. Um, I, I was aware of a lot. One was um, the organophosphates that in, in the late 70s the, and early 80s, the British Ministry of Agriculture had a scheme to eradicate warble fly from um, dairy cows. And it's a, a fly whose maggot hatches under the skin is pretty unpleasant, but it's not life-threatening. And the, the way they proposed and did it was <laughs> making cows walk through a bath of organophosphates, which is a lethal nerve agent on the brain. So goodness knows what it did to the cows, but I know my brother got a bit ill from it and reading about it, I was really unhappy about that. And the other one was in, the, in um, oh, sometime in the eighties, I would come across a, a farmer who was telling me how he'd been persuaded, or they were trying to persuade him to spray Roundup glyphosate on wheat just before harvest time. Uh, the idea being to kill any wheat that was still green and this has become, since then, a, this was brand new in those days, it's become a very common practice. And it's something that Zach Bush talks a lot about. And I'd recommend any of your viewers to, to look to him for brilliant advice. You may even have interviewed him. He's just a genius. He's an MD. Um, but he's done a lot of work on glyphosate. And that, that's, in those days, that was one of the worst things. But since then, it's got even worse. You know, and this is what really makes me feel pretty tragic about it actually because in the 80s we, we we had a vision we we felt you know me and other organic farmers and growers in the UK and and in Europe you know even in the world uh, we that we could change things and, and and really help and heal the soil and society and we had a slogan in the 80s 20% organic by 2000 in Britain 20% of farmland and it hardly changed from the 80s to 2000, around 3%, I think it was. And it's not a lot more. I might be corrected, but it's not a significant difference now. You know, we, it, it's, it, looking back on it, what was all that about? We had these great dreams and visions, and like people still do, we're going to heal the world, we're going to heal the environment. We are up against big forces here. Yeah. Sorry to be, you know, sound a bit negative about that. No, and I and it's funny that you mentioned that because I um I am I'm a huge fan of Zach Bush and you know several people that have come on. Sadly, I have not gotten him on yet, but I I you know I think it's really important and I always try to mention this that you know also around the same time of the introduction of glyphosate in the 70s was when we started to see an insane increase in, in cancers, in autism, in all of these sort of um, diseases that have always arguably been around, but, you know, just all of a sudden, you know, it's like now one in two will get cancer, one in three will get autism, you know, it's just, um, there's something going on and, you know, we can't, you yeah, know. And <laughs> also children, so many more children getting autoimmune and, and, and autism and all these kinds of things. And 
again, Zach Bush has done great work on that, but it's something that really upsets me because, uh, you know, I've got three kids, two of them are type one diabetic and, and one has got um, asthma. And, you know, I'm not saying you could directly attribute that to anything in particular. And that's the problem. It's really difficult to do that. But you yeah. look at the global, the total figures, they are frightening how many youngsters have got diseases. Yeah, well, and, and that's just, you know, and there's so many huge things that, you know, are going on and, and it, it is, it can be really disheartening. And I think the one thing that I, I wanted to ask you was, you know, as you were sort of pioneering this and, and talking a lot about organic when it was, mm. you know, maybe things haven't changed so much, but certainly the term and the theory and all of the elements of organic and needing to eat organic, that certainly has evolved, you know, I would say in a, in a, in a pretty big way. And, you know, how did you in those early years speak to this when there was so much probably like skepticism and maybe even like a little bit of hostility from other gardeners who weren't wanting to do things naturally? Like, cause yeah. I always struggle with this, you know, how do you have these conversations in a proactive way whilst moving forward and not getting disheartened yourself? Totally. Well, my, my reaction actually to that is keeping my head down and just getting on with my gardening because these are debates. It's very hard to score any points really or make any worthwhile difference unless you're really well informed yeah. and you can counter the incredibly well resourced by by the, the industrial complex. Basically, you know, the scientists are looking much more at um, they're being paid to look at <laughs> things that, that are not in the organic world. I that's probably the best way to put it. You know, organics itself has been hardly researched. And so we've, we've got very few data um, to to point the, uh, out, uh, out the benefits and, and it's only just recently in fact you know I've been working now in the last year with a scientist who actually measure things <laughs> and she's looking at the um, constituents of my dig no dig trial beds and one thing she's noticed already I'm jumping ahead a bit here but <laughs> is that the um, the carbon level in the no dig bed is much higher than the soil that's being dug and that's a pointer to how tilling it, it came up in the Kiss the Ground documentary as well. You know, tilling is, is releasing huge amounts of carbon into the atmosphere, just that one single thing. And that's what makes me really proud to be no digging that I have been doing it, you know, for the main part for 40 years, because I, I always felt it was right, but I never had that um, that scientific knowledge, say, just to, just to back it up and, and go out there and campaign a bit more. But I feel now I'm in a strong enough position and also with, with decades of strong results that's another thing you know this this method works so well and it's so effective in terms of um, giving you less time needed for weeds don't grow so much all that kind of thing uh, i'm feeling stronger and stronger in, in the ability to to really push now but but from an individual level more not in terms of persuading government you know that's another conclusion i've made over decades uh, you know i've seen so many people lose the argument with politicians um, and who will promise things and then don't do anything and, and it does, I don't think it works to, to try and persuade those in power. I don't think they really want change for whatever reason. That's a bit of a generalization, but you know, that's the broad outlook, it, it, it disempowers them. So basically it's up to us, we can do it. And, and, and social media is brilliant for me for that. Uh, I can get in contact with people. We can all do our bit. Yeah. And I mean, it, it is so true. And I, I think with the politics, I've had so many conversations about this. Um, I was actually, I majored in politics before I decided to start a business. I came to the same conclusion as you that literally I would have just been beating my head against a wall for many years. And I think the whole thing is that, you know, 
because we live in a democracy and people have short terms in office where they need to get yeah. reelected, they're not willing to stick their neck out and do something unpopular and yeah. create significant yeah. change because it means they're not going to get reelected in the short term. And I would say also the media play a part here. And, mm. and I'm getting more and more disillusioned with the media because I don't feel they report things fairly and truly. And, and you know, uh, stories on the environment make a brief headline, then they disappear. But there, there's not enough backup. People are not well informed enough about all this and, and not in the way that, say, I can get information out on social media that I feel really counts more. Yeah. Uh, I've struggled over the years to get um, information about my methods into, say, national media. Mm. Uh, whereas on social media uh, I can just reach my audience just like that yeah and it's amazing and and so going into your your messaging Charles so this idea of no dig so you sort of you 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 kind of brought it up and, and explained it just quickly but it basically means that you are you're not so just to give everybody an example here um you know my dad actually owns a landscaping company in in Maine where I'm from and my husband and I were talking about wanting to you know create um vegetable gardens when we move back there and my dad was like oh great well I'll just get out the rototiller and I'll bring it and I'll do it and as I mentioned to you my husband has read some of your books and he was like oh like Thanks, thanks, Pelican. But um, I that's not actually what I was like planning on doing. And he, and my dad, like, couldn't quite make sense of what yeah. Jamie was saying. Like, he was like, "So wait, you're not gonna, you know?" Because yeah. my dad has been doing this for I don't know thirty years now, and so he can't yeah. fathom that Jamie would want to spend the time doing this in such an, a way that he does not understand. So, so what? is it because i think there's a lot of people out there who are more like my father yeah. than probably like us. Yeah, i quite agree i mean i can tell that from the questions we get repeatedly and and it's like um people with some experience actually are, are, are much more hard to persuade if you like because it's going against what they've always done whereas beginners really get it because no dig is really simple it's exactly what it says on the tin it means you do not dig disturb till rotivate plow <laughs> do any you just don't do any of that you leave the soil as it is then the question is well people who are used to doing the cultivation how is the soil ever going to be loose enough that you can sow seeds and plant plants so you simple answer for gardening it's more complicated for large-scale farming but for gardening you put a thin layer of compost on top compost meaning anything decomposed and that is what receives the soil and the plants initially and then they root down into the undisturbed soil which because it's undisturbed has all the existing structure. You know, if you look at a, a garden or farm field or, or even wild areas, you'll see lots of things growing already. Uh, what many of us would call weeds, which is plants, basically, wild plants. And the fact that they're growing is a really good clue and encouraging sign that the soil has good structure because otherwise their roots could not be getting in there and traveling around and finding what they need and where food to grow. So it's just working out how you smother, kill the weeds, the compost on top, and so implant into that, and you've got the existing structure in place. So Nodig is working with the existing soil and also for vegetable garden, improving its fertility through the compost, which is not fertilizer. This is a really important point. Uh, this is where I think I struggle a bit with, with people who, who are used to thinking in a different way, you know, that because they'll equate compost, say, with fertilizer. And mm. it's not, it's not like a box of nutrients you're putting on there. It's a load of biology, and that biology is what activates the soil organisms which are already present to get really busy humming with life. Um, they all get eating and excreting and um, that provides nutrients in complex organic forms, not water soluble. 
for plants to grow. Yeah, and I just want to pick up on something because actually I've got a lot of friends who, you know, are moving to the country and I think COVID has propelled that, you know, an incredible amount. And, you know, and, and I find myself having these conversations and people don't understand really why, like, you know, going and getting like a, a miracle grow compost or, you know, um, a fertilizer down at like the big store and, mm. and just throwing that on their plants and in their soil is a bad thing because, you know, for most people, it's like, I'm going to the garden store, I'm planting, uh, I'm, you know, I'm getting a bag of compost. Like, and of course, and, and as you rightly say, it's also because the government doesn't regulate this. So they are not regulating what sort of insane chemicals are going into these bags of compost. And then also the media is not reporting on the fact that, you know, we need to like stay away from these things. So I, I, I watched one yeah. of the videos yeah. and it was talking about um, literally like, I think to give an idea of how incredibly powerful these chemicals are and how much we want to avoid getting them into our systems is like you gave an example of two plants that you'd grown and one you'd taken horse manure where the horses had been feeding off of a field that had conventional fertilizer and it, it was a weed killer actually this one weed killer okay yeah so weed killer so sorry it's kind of a different story but again i just want to get across like the power of these chemicals and how <laughs> like insane they are so I'll stop rambling and let you tell the story if you no, know. Can what I just mention this one in particular because it's a classic example of what, what you're saying there. It's it's um, a weed killer which has different trade names, but the active ingredient is a pyrolid weed killer, which is basically in technical terms, it's a growth promoting auxin, which it kills plants by making them grow so fast that they can't support that kind of structure anymore, and they kind of almost explode, and then just shrivel and die. And you see the effect you see on plants is leaves curling at the tips. It looks really, they look contorted and really, it's uncomfortable to watch actually. Yeah. Um, like you see it on potatoes, tomatoes, peas and beans in particular in the vegetable garden. But farmers use it on fields of grass, which they're making hay for horses. Mm. as a weed killer to kill docks, thistles, nettles and all the things that horse owners apparently don't want in their hay. Although I would say they should want them really because <laughs> it's lots of food and nutrients from the, the wild plants. Anyway, this, this stuff though is so persistent horse eats it, goes through the horse's stomach, surely it does something to the horse, but nobody seems to have looked at that, comes out in the horse poo, sits in a heap of horse manure for up to 10 years, it doesn't degrade, so this stuff is still basically an active weed killer in manure that farmers uh, gardeners might be using in their garden. Yeah. You put it on, uh, I even put some in my compost heap, that's how I found out about it, I was using a bit of fresh horse manure from tainted with this stuff in, in a heap just to activate it a bit. And then the following spring, uh, when I spread my compost, uh, the potatoes were growing in this stunted way and, and I had no idea what was going on. Like a lot of people don't know. And that's why this, this is not really being reported. Most people don't know it's happening. It's happening, I think, much more. In Scandinavia in the last two years, they've had terrible problems with it. There's not quite a campaign and, and lobbying the government, but it needs people to get organized, active and, and informed as well. And until that point, Dow, the chemical company who make this stuff, <laughs> they, they'll just say to things to anyone who complains, because I've had a lot of, I get a lot of emails on this and we talk about it a lot. And they just say, oh, this is very uncommon. You know, you're really unlucky. And they kind of dismiss it like that. Whereas it's not uncommon. They're not unlucky. This is getting actually quite general. And we're trying to unite people, actually. If, if, if anyone's got these symptoms on their plants, we, we need to talk. You know, it needs someone to organize a website or something. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's just one example of, of one of the, just one of the terrible things happening. Yeah. And another thing that I think is, you know, I think that something else that I've been 
like learning a lot about personally is another person that I follow quite closely in the States is this guy called Dr. Mark Hyman. And similarly to Zach Bush, he's also, you know, an MD and, and has started mm -hmm. to look at regenerating the soil and soil health as the way to heal a lot of like, you know, the issues his client or his patients are having. And, um, he, you know, he did this whole video the other day on like, he picked like, like a piece of broccoli, like conventionally grown broccoli. And he's like, you know, this piece of broccoli has less nutrients in it, 50% less nutrients now in it than it would have done 50 years ago. So like you think you're eating a brilliant piece of broccoli, but actually because the soil is so depleted mm -hmm. and the broccoli itself gets all the nutrients from the soil, it even is like impacting the genetic makeup of what we're eating and whether or not we're able to get the nutrients that we should be getting from vegetables. Is this something like that you're seeing or like you've experienced sort of on the ground over these last like few years of, you know, maybe like looking more at like the science or speaking more to people like that? Yeah, the um, I would say two things on that. One is it's quite hard at, at my level without a laboratory to um, measure nutrients. And I, I I had tried to buy actually from Dan Kittredge, uh, the uh, Bionutrient Association in, in the States. And, and they had been producing a bio, what they call a bionutrient meter or nutrient meter. And you can point it at food or vegetables or plants and it'll tell you how much is in there. Uh, but they've had trouble getting it to market and, and making something reliable. I'm still hoping to buy one of those. But until then, I can't be sure. Yeah. But what I can be sure about is some whole other aspect um, of the health giving quality of food which is microbes because that is now being massively researched both by nutrients and by soil biologists and there's huge linkage there because of the on the one hand you've got a lot of people with gut problems and on the other hand you've got soil scientists talking about soils that are really denuded of microbes and health in both cases it's a lack of microbes and it turns out that soil microbes are very similar to gut microbes and so eating produce from a well-tilled or untilled well-managed soil you you're gonna have more micros there by definition because you've got more soil life and that is gonna help your gut so the broccoli you mentioned it's a combination of yeah nutrient depletion and microbe depletion and the latter is something that's only re recently come into focus by i think potentially that could be an even bigger one and it's something that all of us can address very simply by if you can get hold of a bit of land and grow a bit of your own food because by default if you do it no dig healthy way you're gonna have healthy microbes in the food that you eat invisible but they're there and you will love that yeah yeah exactly and it's funny because i feel like inherently as humans we sort of know that we've stepped away from these things that do heal us like i yeah. remember you know when i was growing up like i um my mom I've, i'm really lucky my mom has always gone to the farmer's market and we've always really because i grew up in the american she always used to say we can't like afford you know health care so like this is our health care is like going to well, the that's farmers. brilliant that's just a brilliant statement yeah he, and he was actually making the best choice there yeah. And, and it's, you know, like knock on wood, you know, we've all been, me, my father, and my mother have all been, you know, healthy our lives. But I am, um, you know, it was interesting because I remember as a kid, I was always like, I wanted to get all the, you know, dirt off the potatoes and all of that. Oh, and yeah, my yeah, mom yeah. used to say, like, leave a little dirt on, it's good for you. And I was like, mom, ew. And she was like, I was like, really? Is that true? And she's like, I don't know, your grandmother used to say it. And I love it, your mother. <laughs> She's enlightened. <laughs> oh yeah, no, I'm sure. I'm sure you guys would get on really well. But it's so funny because now, like, I I think about that and listening to Zach Bush yeah. and stuff, and it's like a little bit like 
almost because I think he almost made a probiotic that was like sourced from, you know, like organic regeneratively, like, you know, harvested like soil. And I think it's so funny because we've become so used to right totally sterilized food that we think that like yeah yeah. like how do you deal with that like how do you how do you charles do you like do you keep things like um as as natural as possible like how have you kind of noticed your own heating habits that might be a little bit different from the conventional you know what i i I felt healthier i would say in my last 10 years i'm 62 now i reckon you know I feel I'm getting healthier all the time as I get older, which is not apparently how it's meant to work. But I, I think I do link it to this. I'm, I'm eating more what some people would call dirty food, but not obviously dirty. But I'll quite often be out in the garden. I'll pull a carrot, wipe it on my trousers, and eat it with that little bit of soil on deliberately. And funny enough, my mother used to say to me, "We should all eat a pack of soil in our lifetime." And that's something like. Or in, in our word, nine leaves, or it might be two bushels in your language. It's quite a big volume. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and the actual word peck has another meaning, which is like a tiny little peck, but it's actually not that at all. It's quite a bit. So yeah, eating soil is, is a positive thing. And when, when we're selling vegetables, we, we give them a rinse, but we never, we're never meticulous and we're not trying to sell sort of hygiene, hygienic food, uh, wash the salad leaves in rainwater, for example, and, and, and um, sell them with a bit of that moisture on. But not super clean and certainly never chlorinated or anything like that. You know, most store-bought salad leaves have really been hyg- made hygienic, I'm afraid. And, and that, that's where you run into problems. So that's where growing your own again scores so well. So when you say hygienic, just out of curiosity, like what, what just the salad leaves in the like example, like, cause I didn't actually even know about that. So like, can you give an example of like what, what is happening to our food before it? Like, cause how does like, if you go into a Waitrose or a Tesco or Sainsbury's, how does everything look so perfect yeah well i can only go by what i've read obviously i'm not involved in the process but from what i hear they commonly are washed in chlorinated water salad leaves because they have to pass all these what i would call ridiculous um barriers to getting to market you know they've got to be so-called hygienic you know coming back to this thing and and the view the food has to be sterile which we're now realizing is is not good but the People are scared as well of being sued, you know, by um, people who get ill as a result of eating something. So they feel it's safer, I think, to have it super clean in their terms, which means it's devoid of, of life. And yeah, what, what can I say? I mean, it, it, everything looks so perfect also because it's coming from kind of dead soil where everything's micromanaged. So fertilizers is an example where you can pump in the water soluble nutrients, which is what fertilizers are. Um, they're not a soil food in any sense of the word. They're just going to plant roots um, to give, hopefully, uh, not always, because it's hard for farmers to assess. You know, um, Quite a lot of fertilizers go into the groundwater and pollute that. And the farmers aren't paying for that, but the customer is in the end. That's why this food can look cheaper than it really is, because people are buying something that's being produced cheaply, but the environmental consequences are very high. And somebody's going to be paying that either now or very soon. And that really should be factored into the price of the food. So there's so many issues here. But fertilizers, these water-soluble fertilizers, I can send you a link. I don't know if you can put it on podcast. Yeah, yeah. Um, It's a study from a very scientific place in the UK called the Rothamsted. Um, agricultural centre where they've been doing tests on uh, different ways of farming in fields on a farm for well over 100 years, you know, going back to the Victorian times. And, and they, they've got laboratories there and they, what are they discovering? And I don't know how they got into this research, but I think it's so brilliant. And I 
we're up against big business here because you know this there's a lot of money in fertilizers and and i hope this this research continues what what they're noticing is the fields soil that's been fertilized with nitrogen and phosphorus two of the most common fertilizers used to make plants grow is depleting the energy and life of the microbes in the soil because microbes without these fertilizers have to work pretty hard to get their food but the soil is well structured and they through the, the microbial highways the fungal networks you know the hyphae that you, that you i'm sure you've heard about mycorrhizal fungi you know the, the wood wide web and all this kind of thing which i'm convinced exists in vegetable gardens people talk about it more in forests but i'm sure i see it working here where we do things like interplanting say lettuce and spinach and you, you can almost see that the two plants helping each other you know it's not competition it's cooperation and in an undisturbed soil with lots of good structure, which you get from not disturbing it. You've got all this organic matter and it enables uh, a gluey aggregates to form and a great structure to maintain itself. And these microbes can talk very easily with each other and swap food and energy in whatever way they do and program to do. And that maintains the, the health, vitality and nutrition of the soil and holds on to all the nutrients there. You know, it's just, it just happens without us having to do too much. That's the beauty of it. Yeah. And I think like an amazing thing about this is just the power, like I remember having watched Kiss the Ground too. And, and I, I liked that documentary because it did make you feel like there was this incredible solution to climate change. And you kind of touched upon it before at the very beginning, but also the abilities of all of these soils, microbes, to, to store car like I mean, and I think everybody knows you know wherever you are on the spectrum of climate change sustainable living etc we all know that we need to get rid of carbon emissions um and what can you just explain you kind of dipped into it earlier but can you explain a little bit just about how this also maybe this healthy soil does do more to um capture or store carbon <laughs> yeah sure I mean, this Not being is like really, super scientific about it, but yeah, just I, I'll, I think I'll know a lot more about this in a year's time. Is because I'm working with this scientist and I haven't got all her results yet. But the, the main one I've got is how there is much more carbon in undisturbed soil. Basically, you know the mechanisms of how that works. I, I stand to be corrected, but I, I'm not aware there's been a huge amount of research because I mean, carbon itself and the soil is. It's quite a new subject in scientific terms. You know, who, who was looking at this 10 years ago? Since not many people, where, where was the money to fund the research and all this kind of thing? So it's, it's all new ground. We're breaking yeah. new ground to use the wrong metaphor. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's interesting how a lot of the, the, the sayings in language come from, from tilling. But, you know, I've often felt with my work and no digging, I've been a bit of a lone voice in, until recently. And, you know, I was plowing a lonely furrow. I don't know if you know that expression. <laughs> that was so crazy. <laughs> Um, but the, the carbon in the soil, I, I think it's just held on more there because it, just from lack of disturbance, you know, carbon is oxidized. Carbon very easily turns to CO2. CO2 is carbon plus oxygen, you know, that's, that's a simple chemical equation. And so exposing carbon to air, which, which any kind of tilling does. So sadly, your father-in-law with a rototiller, you know, that that's what he's doing. He doesn't know it. He can't see the carbon escaping, but it is. And if we could only get you know more education on this and and, and you know knowledge is power uh, uh so that's why it's brilliant to talk to you you know now you know it's a chance to to help people understand a few more things hopefully and and, and we we all need to talk more about this and explain it so i'm desperate to learn more about the science like you actually yeah well i mean everybody stay tuned who's listening because it's it's something i definitely want to bring up more and more 
100% and I don't know if anybody fully grasps it yet, um, but I'm hoping the severity of climate change will get people to really shift into gear on the solutions that we have. Um, and then another thing, Charles, that I feel like you can speak to quite well is just also this idea of like monocropping. And again, you sort of just touched upon it mm -hmm. now with how, you know, your, your different things that you grow actually kind of end up helping one another and supporting one another underground. But, you know, often my, my husband's from Devon and when we are driving down from, you know, Cornwall, uh, from London into Devon, you just notice the fields and they all just look, they're just rows, like rows and rows and rows of exactly the same thing over and over again. And it, it you can't help but think it looks a little bit like, I always just thought it kind of looked dead. Like it was just, um, it looked dry and it looked like kind of soulless. And, you know, uh, England is such a teeny country. So I feel like we really notice it here. Whereas in America, everything's kind of been shoved into the Midwest um, and not a lot of people can see it. But here, I think for our British audience, like you really can see what monocropping is. And can you just kind of explain, Charles, why why it's not the best practice, why big agriculture, you know, should maybe learn to embrace biodiversity again like you said like why is it that when they're harvesting hay they have to get all the nettle and all the like you know the little things out which i'm sure horses wouldn't mind eating or whatever they're using it for so mm, so yeah. what's the deal with that just for everybody listening i think the deal is a very it's a profound question actually because it takes us to deep into the human psyche uh you know yeah why why are we doing that uh, it goes back to, I think, in the UK, anyway, to Victorian times and, and the rise of modern analytical science and ways of thinking where you take one factor at a time and analyse the way of improving it. So in the case of, say, feeding farm crops, um, the, the scientists would be looking at that out of the context of the whole farm system, not taking into account biology, even because since Liebig discovered that just adding these three things, nitrogen, potassium, phosphorus, fertilizer, to farmland gave much higher yields of food. And, and that was all that was needed. Then that's been pretty much the road that a lot of farmers have gone down. Mm. And why wouldn't they? Because it, it, it makes money for them in the easiest way. You know, they're, they're a business like anyone else. And, and so, it's, you know, it's kind of hard to blame the farmers, but at the same time, they are part of some environmental destruction going on, as, as they're finding now at Rothamsted in the way that soil microbes are being destroyed basically in the end by application of fertilizers, synthetic fertilizers. And that's something since the eighties that I've always felt more strongly about than when, when I started out, it was much, a lot of campaigning against what people call pesticides and fertilizers tend to get lumped into that word. It's a bit of a vague word because pesticide, it turns out in many people's minds also means herbicides, you know, just to be clear on all this different jargon. So you've got pesticides that kill insects. That's just the strict definition of the word. You've got herbicides that kill weeds. So that'd be like the weed killer I've mentioned. And then you've got fertilizers, synthetic ones that feed plants in inverted commas. So farmers are thinking very much in those analytical ways outside of the box of understanding any whole system that can work more in a more joined up way and a more environmental way and they're not looking at environmental consequences here it's just economics because that's they've been given permission to do that you know basically society has said we want more food you, you do it and and you know until recently the environmental consequences are not even being considered they've been always on the fringe yeah. and so the most efficient way of doing all of these things is monocropping 
you know, that, that's it in a nutshell. It's much easier to sow all your wheat at one go with nothing else there. The modern science has given farmers this powerful tool of selective weed killers, which means it's a poison you can put on the ground that will kill only certain plants and not the wheat. We don't know what it might be doing to the wheat, I suspect a bit more, or indirectly through this poison getting into the soil system. Now, I don't think anyone until recently has really looked at that one. You know, how long it lingers, certainly that's the case with Roundup, which Zach Bush talks about. And so you've, you've got, you know, farmers have got the tools, they're really dangerous, but no one's really acknowledging that. And, and that's the result of what you see is the result of that. And, and until recently, farmers have managed to make more and more money every year by applying <laughs> more fertilizer, more pesticides, more poisons. And it's only recently that they, from what I hear in the farming world, this has not been massively fagged up in the media. Um, so I don't think most people would have heard about it, but more and more farmers, big farmers using a lot of chemicals are now growing concerned because they can see that, hang on a minute, we're putting on a lot more stuff here, more poisons, and our yields are not going up anymore. Mm. Like, it's sort of the environmental system has reached a limit. And, 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 you know, I think they've milked it to the, to the nth degree. And soil structure is kind of probably one of the big factors in this book linked to the research at Rottenstead. But the soil hasn't got much more to give. And, and soil has been massively ignored. You know, when it, back in the 80s, even not long ago, I would hear statements like from scientists, prominent people, soil is like a bank balance. It's nutrients in and nutrients out. You know, that was how soil, we were encouraged to see soil, just like uh, in a hydroponic growing, just as a neutral medium, if you like. No account of the biology. And now suddenly they're seeing that, well, okay, it is to a point, but if it can't hold on to moisture anymore, that's another one. Degraded soil cannot hold moisture. That hasn't really been considered up until recently. Uh, and certainly life and microbes and all these other things that give soil structure, the structure is getting harder and harder for farmers to manage. So there are some changes in the pipeline, just to finish that little <laughs> piece on a more positive note, like some farmers are now sowing what are called cover crops, where say they finish harvesting their wheat, um, still growing only wheat, but then so, something like winter radish, um, vetches, um, beans, uh, grasses to keep the ground covered over winter, keep it alive a bit. Then they plow that in. Um, it's still very difficult to do that no-till, but there are farmers looking at no-till. Interestingly, no-till farmers who are really into the soil biology because they realize it's value, in the UK at least, it's very difficult for them to be organic because when it, in the first couple of years when they stop plowing, they, still need to use herbicide because the, how are they going to kill the weeds if they don't bury them with the plow and their soil life is somewhat degraded uh, it, it's just much harder to manage and they get a lot of slugs that's another one mm. <laughs> uh, slugs eating the new seedlings they put in and that's because decades of abusing the soil have resulted in degradation of soil life and in healthy soil you have beetles for example which eat a lot of slug eggs but, you know, without thinking about it and without knowing, these farmers have killed, say, all the beetles, or very nearly all. So they've got to build up their population again. It means the first couple of years, I reckon, of, of no-till for any farmer is really hard. And that's where government should be subsidising it. If they really cared about this, that's where the money should be going to help people switch from tilling to no-till. And then you can be organic after that. I mean, you might need these helps in the meantime. Yeah, it's a really interesting point. And I feel like I have a few friends whose whose families, um, you know, are 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 in these really big farming families and, and you know, they, they they're definitely set in their ways. And, you know, I, their argument there's there's several arguments that are made. But I think one of the big ones is that, you know, there's no way that like organic farming could ever feed the entire population like it's. Can I interrupt you here? 
Yeah. Very just to say, because that that I, I can see exactly where they're coming from with that statement. You know, I've, I've been in that situation myself with my family and my father would say exactly the same. But that statement does not allow for what I've just described about how soil needs to recover. And, and I know farmers who say they just stop putting on fertilizer. Oh, my God. You know, the wheat's all yellow. It's not growing. Well, sure it is because your soil is dead. You know, and until you can get your soil life back, that wheat cannot grow without the artificial prop of the synthetic fertilizers. So that's where statements like that come from. They're true as far as the farmer sees it, but they're not looking far enough ahead. So do you think then if we gave everybody, say, five years to, you know, so if we just stopped, like tomorrow, say Boris Johnson was just like, that's it, it's illegal now to till or use fertilizers or do anything you have to, if you're a farmer, do things organically, and we're going to subsidize you, you know, for a couple of years to not do this. Um, do you think within five years, the UK would be in a position where they would be able to feed the people, like they would be able to produce as much as they're producing now organically? Possibly, but I think, I don't think one could be as abrupt as that. Cause I mean, going back to what I was saying that there, there would be this huge, slump in output so that's why it's got to it's got to be faced in more gradually using things like the cover crops i mentioned mm. i mean it's kind of ironic we're talking about this because it, it's quite different to what my main speciality is which is no big gardening where we can bring compost to soil and heal it very quickly and farmers can't do that on yeah. massive scale um, but they they can do more the cover crop and, and using big machines to till it in and direct so and those things but that takes more time than in no dig gardening to rebuild the fertility so it's totally possible it needs a lot of commitment and a lot of well-informed people to be managing it uh, and i wish it would happen <laughs> i'm not convinced it's going to though but uh, you know i don't want to dilute it too much by saying that but no i, I would urge any farmer to listening you know certainly to to really consider these things if you aren't yeah. already i'm sure you are <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, I'm sure everybody is going to be confronted also with a changing climate and the realities of what that yeah. looks like. You know, yeah. I yeah. I order a lot of um, our food from from Riverford and I love guys, you know, he always sends emails or newsletters yeah. that say, you know, because like, like and he's like, you know, we're in a climate emergency and we are seeing it. It's either drought or torrential rain when you know this is affecting growing seasons and blah 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 and like I'd love to ask you about that Charles like what are you seeing on the ground as a farmer you know I I know that climate change doesn't seem I think is obvious to people here because it's just not but like my friends that live in California they're like I don't understand how people can't say that climate change is here. I mean, like the state's burning to the ground. Everybody yeah. sees it. We're suffocating with smoke, but here yeah, it's like budget. less, it's less well, in your every day, but I'm sure you see it. Oh yeah. And, and, and I want, I want us to react before it gets that severe, but the sort of things I'm seeing is, for example, longer periods of dry and then longer periods of wet. The weather is not as variable or easy as it used to be. And then what I'm seeing with Nodig is how well the soil is coping with the, the new stresses. And for example, when we get really heavy rain, and this is heavy soil here, it's a silt over clay. Uh, when it's conservated, it gets very sticky. <laughs> Obviously, I'm not doing that except on my dig bed. And what I see is really heavy rain, and you can just watch the water going in. And it, where, even where we've been pushing heavy wheelbarrows, for example, the structure in the pathways is fantastic. And that, that gives me so much encouragement. And the sheer amount of output as well. Um, um, I am still amazed when I go out in my garden 
every year I feel it's getting better. It's getting more beautiful. The plants are getting stronger. They look absolutely glowing with health. Um, those are the kinds of things that as a farmer you want to be seeing and, and tells, tell you much more than stay soil tests do that things are working well in your soil. So that, that what gives me so much confidence about talking about the value of no dig and you know so if we know that it locks carbon in the soil it keeps carbon in the soil it can react better to extreme uh, rainfall uh, it holds on to the moisture that's for two reasons one is that you when you don't disturb the soil obviously you're not releasing moisture that's kind of common sense uh, but another one it turns out is that the microbial life which is still intact in undisturbed soil the mycorrhizal fungi are tiny filaments and they can extract moisture from little tiny tiny spores pores in the soil where plant roots couldn't even get in there because they're too large. And so that's the beauty of, of no-dig mycorrhizal network, the combination of roots forming symbiosis with the fungi in the soil, going, which then can bring them food and nutrients and, um, and moisture in return for the roots giving energy carbon to the fungi in the soil. So again, carbon, so much comes back to carbon as a sort of fuel, the building block for soil, soil structure, soil food, uh, soil activity in general, Sold everything so it's kind of i find it kind of ironic with with um you know the climate emergency <laughs> that's a good word um but it does come back to carbon so much and, and so much of farming is about carbon but that's been so ignored yeah well i mean and i think we had i i had a guy on here who was literally a carbon expert and you know i really had him break down you know, all of this. And it was actually one of, I'm really thrilled. It was one of our most popular episodes, also one of our most scientific, which was great. But he was basically like, I mean, he was like, what's so ironic is that like carbon is the building block of life. Like mm -hmm. carbon in its state of just how it should be on earth is like imperative. Like we must have it, you know? And he was like, but it's just that we have utilized it in a way that is so detrimental and quite frankly bizarre that we've let it go this far that he's like you know it's now this dirty word instead of looking at it and flipping at like on its head which I think Charles is sort of what you're doing and by yeah. saying you know keep it in the soil and it's amazing like you yeah. know it's it's you know it's great and it's needed yeah 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 um with no dig gardening it's actually very simple and also making compost is is one fantastic way of, of adding value to the whole ecosystem um, because we can also use other people's wastes and bring that to gardens anyone can do that there's a lot for example at the moment you know any of your listeners if you know a tree surgeon or, or um, find one on the internet woody waste like wood chips which weren't around about 30 40 years ago it's kind of ironic uh, but they're a fantastic source of carbon uh, to get it more in the soil and you can convert wood pile of wood chips say to will turn to compost almost on its own within a couple of years but we, we speed it up by adding it to compost heaps and it, the carbon in there then balances very nicely with all the green matter waste we got from the garden and from grass and things like that. Mm. And so we're... I notice with gardeners actually is how their eyes really light up when we get to the stage of learning about making compost as we get to the compost heaps, you know, that, that's, it's, it's almost a whole other subject. Uh, yeah, I know, but actually, can you just touch upon it really quickly, Charles? Because I think that, um, I, you know, I, I think that like, for instance, here, I live in London in Hackney and, and our council is really great. And at my apartment building, we have a, we have actually a compost like um, bin that we can all bring it to. And I think they distribute it to, you know, gardeners around Hackney, which is great. But 
you know, like in the States where everybody has all these huge backyards and lawns and everything, like nobody is composting and the amount of food waste in America is shocking anyway. Um, And yeah, no, composting and oftentimes recycling are not provided by the government. So you really have to do it yourself. Um, This is where government can really help and needs to, because, you know, there may be not much money in it to start with, but they they've got to close that they've got to help to close that loop like you say it's a shocking amount of waste on the one hand it's a shocking need for carbon in the soil on the other and those two can be beautifully brought together by the help of a bit of enlightened government but yeah. you've got you know all that food waste from supermarkets <laughs> a big problem a lot of it's wrapped in plastic you know so then how do you, you are you going to pay people to unwrap it all so so it needs even thinking a bit beyond that or back back one step back you know supermarkets or stores whatever you know please don't wrap the food so much that i don't know yeah but even if you're just like even if you're at home and you're cooking like how important is it to have a compost heap where you're putting like those scrap like you know like do those little things make a difference you know if like you're just like cooking and you've got like you know half of a cucumber that you don't use or something like would you say it's definitely worth it to try and actively compost those bits or is it so, is it such a big thing that we need to address in a big way that it's almost like, yeah, that's not something that's like. Well, I think in Britain, there's quite a good balance at the moment. So, you know, I think a lot of people have got access. They can put their food in a food waste bin and that will be taken by the recycling lorry to, somewhere where it's converted to compost i hope anyway that's what they say is going on. um or you you know if you had a lot of food waste um you can buy these things called hot bins which um enclose it and, and heat up readily and that, that's a way of turning it to compost but i i do think that you know if, if, if we're talking about single person living on their own in a flat say no it's not worth trying to have a compost heap or make your own it's just not not viable but but make sure that your organic matter waste not only food but things like paper Paper makes great compost in the end, you know, mixed with food, say. Um, so any, anything recyclable does go to be recycled and not go in the landfill. So that will be one way of keeping carbon in the system. Yeah. So everybody, yeah, just just try and, and really like get into it. It's something that I've gotten more and more into. And it's kind of, you know, I think a lot of people think it's quite yeah, gross. Yeah, but it's actually any, great. Anyone with, anyone with a yard or garden, you know, you, you really should be looking at it. And, and you can make... You know, I put up a video about this. You can make a very simple, very cheap compost heap just with four pallets and wire them together at the corners. You've seen eight pieces of wire and four pallets. That is all. No posts in the ground, nothing like that. Plonk them on the ground. It could be full of weeds. That's okay. What you put on will smother the weeds. It can be in the shade. It can be in the sun. There's no, you know, it, it, this subject is often made far too complicated. It's just simply, <laughs> if you have an enclosure, that makes a more efficient um, composting system and having it all open, so hence the pallets. And just fill it up as much as you can. And to get a worthwhile amount, get in a mentality where you're looking at other people's waste. Um, there's still a lot of that going on. Like you say, most people are still not thinking in these terms, so they're throwing a lot of stuff away. Or, you know, they might be weeding their garden and, and they'll just, I don't know, burn their weeds even, that sort of thing. You know, grab them. You can compost weeds as well. You can compost everything organic matter. There's a lot of things that you're told you can't compost that you can. We compost roots of bindweed, for example, which in most gardening books and articles is a total no-no. I find they break down fine, and it, even without heat. You know, there's a lot of mythical nonsense out there, basically, that, that is much simpler than, than you might have read about. Go for it. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's so funny. I've started, I, I don't know if you know him, uh, Charles, but have you ever heard of Ron Finley out in LA? 
Oh, the name does ring. Oh, hang on. What's he he calls himself the gangster gardener. And he's basically, he grew up in Compton, I believe, like, you know, where there's total food insecurity. Nobody like has grown wow. anything in years. There's only pavement. And he wow. basically wanted to start growing some tomatoes. So he like pulled up a bit of sidewalk and um, they gave <laughs> him a court summons for, for trying to grow food because they were like, you know, you're defacing public property. And he's like, yeah, yeah. I'm trying to grow food. And anyway, he's become this, I mean, he's now literally set up all these gardens around LA. He's trying to get yeah. like, kids into gardening you know like in an area and a demographic where this is just so you know not something that's been accessible to these people and it's an amazing story and I love watching him because he's always you know he was giving a talk the other day and he's like I wish that people would stop making gardening this thing that you like have to be good at or you have to have tons of like you know he's like if you've got soil seeds sun water and like you know other like dead stuff you're you're pretty much good (laughs) dead stuff as he put it i mean you have make your compost from that yeah exactly like and he was just like you know he's like i'm not a scientist i'm not anybody that like could have done this but he's like i've just learned you know and it doesn't have to be perfect and i feel like that's kind of what you're saying is it's just like just that's why I think it's so good to, to get kids involved because they don't know any of this baggage. They're just coming with fresh minds. And I find beginners much easier to teach about no dig than, than traditional gardeners, you know, just because they they can see it for what it is, the simplicity, if you like. And let's go. Let's do it. You know, why not? <laughs> you find and I, I, I know we're running short on time, so I'll, I'll kind of maybe wrap this up with this sort of a question. But do you because I think it's a hopeful one, but um. Do you find within your community, you've got this great social media community now and, and YouTube and do you, are you finding that younger people are engaging with what Ooh, you're doing? So much, so much. I'm glad you asked that because it's it's totally, we're noticing, for example, we, we run courses here at Homemakers Day and weekend courses and the average age of the audience has dropped by 15 years, I say, you know, yeah. in, just in the last two years. Um, and we never used to see people say in their 20s, you know, they, they just, this would not have been a cool thing to do and not interesting to that generation. And now, not only are we seeing them, but we really get a feel of their energy that they're bringing to it and their their desire to, to do this well and, and to gain their own health. You know, uh, this thing that we mentioned very briefly at the beginning, seeing health as a positive state. Uh, you know, because we've seen it with COVID so much the opposite. You know, it's a disease. It's coming to get you, whoever you are. Actually, look, let's just concentrate on the health and, and be- becoming positively healthy. Health is, can be infectious, like in that lovely quote of Eve Balfour. You know, health can be as infectious as disease. Let's still ponder that one for a minute. You know, what a lovely thought. And, and gardening, growing your own food helps that. And these youngsters, I would say a lot of them are really embracing it. And I just love the way they, they you know, they, they, they're quite lighthearted about it as well. They're not too serious. It's not this analytical science that can sometimes deaden the subject. And, and let's just go for it. Yeah. 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 Well, all right. Well, that makes me really, really happy to hear. In fact, one of my, one of my best friends, Robert, who's my age, who's 34, like he's taken a few of your courses and uh, online oh. courses and he has started his own regenerative um, garden right here in North London. He got an allotment and, He's, he's growing away and, and he's literally like, you know, I, we always love going to dinner at his house because he's always picked something and, and he <laughs> says what you say, he's like, you know, he, he always has a story like, he's like, oh God, you know, the tomatoes are driving me crazy, but my dahlias are amazing. And like, he's just, <laughs> and you can tell it's like something that has given him so much like passion and, and um, uh, yeah. 
joy and it's just it's great yeah. to see it is empowering and in, in many ways and, and one of them is mental your mental fortitude and and how it can make you feel stronger you you feel confident because you're producing your own food um you know again i don't know your listeners if you haven't really thought about it just give it a go and t- don't don't think it's complicated you know just just try so i see see what happens that kind of thing that can be your starting point yeah exactly all right well charles my final question for you just to just to kind of end on this really inspiring people to get out there and do it is you know you've been doing this for so long and i'm sure there's been really really hard aspects of it but what have you found to be sort of like the most rewarding for getting to spend all of this time in nature and you know in what you do like what what if you just had to sort of sum up like what for you that, that, that's that's what's kept me going over the years when when I was struggling to get the teaching side of it going which is something I've always wanted to do you know I'm interesting and persuading more people how, how to do this and then showing them and so being in nature that's that has given me the the power and the health to do that but now I think now what gives me the most pleasure is is actually connecting with people and imparting this knowledge and seeing how that is empowering them. And um, it's a bit like the difference between power and influence, you know, um, with power, the more you share, the less you have. With influence, the more you share, the more you have. And, and I'm certainly finding that, but it's never been my goal to influence a lot of people, but I do wanna help help them grow food. And I feel blessed that I can do that. And, and I have the evidence here and I'm, I'm surrounded by the evidence, if you like, and working with it all the time. And these beautiful, healthy plants are just great to be around and the lovely soil and the compost. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Charles. And I'm sure that everybody is going to want to go out. So I will link all of these resources of what you've spoken about today and your website and everything. And, and just thank you so much for this work that you're doing. It's really, it's really important and it's really lovely. Well, thank you for, you know, providing these linkages. It's really lovely to have this conversation.